Well, good morning again, church. Thank you so much for gathering this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into whatever space you happen uh, to be this morning. So living room, your dining room, as you maybe sit on your, your couch and uh, watch this on a TV or on a phone, whatever it looks like. Uh, we're just really grateful that you've uh, tuned in uh, this morning. And thanks for inviting us into those spaces uh, as well. And so as has been made mention of before, uh, before we get into the sermon this morning, um, it is uh, Father's Day. And so again, I want to say happy Father's Day to the fathers that are out there. I want to say happy Father's Day in particular to uh, my dad, to my father-in-law. I uh, look forward to celebrating with you all uh, later today. And so uh, this morning, we are in week two of this series we've entitled Seeking After Shalom. And it's a series on racism, responsibility, and reconciliation. And as we introduced this last week, here's the, the reality. Here's the the moment that we're living in, but it's not just about what's happening right now. That really, as we talked last week, what we're experiencing and what our uh, brothers and sisters in the black community, persons of color, what they're experiencing is really the tip of the iceberg, that there's been these problems down through history, all right? As we look in particular, even the, the history of our country, there's been a lot of injustice. There's lots of racism that not only existed in the past, but continues to exist today. And so we wanna ask, look, as a church, like, what are we called to do? And for the Hebrew people, they use this word shalom and it gets translated as peace. And we tend to think, you know, we might then say this series is seeking after peace. And that's a good intention. Like we would love for that. But sometimes in our kind of modern day Western understanding of that, we tend to think peace is just like the absence of conflict. If we can just go to where like there's, you know, there's no more, um, just kind of blatant things happening and there's no more arguing, there's no more fighting, like everything will be okay. Well, the Hebrew idea of shalom is much deeper than that, much more nuanced. Uh, it's multi-layered. It's this idea of, of flourishing, of wholeness, of, of delight. It's the idea of how God created things to be. And so the image that I put before you last week that we want to keep coming back to is our calling as the church is to acknowledge, to be awakened to the reality of what is happening. If you are in the dominant culture, the majority culture, if your skin is white, if it looks like mine uh, this morning to realize we need to come awake, all right, not out of, not out of guilt, but rather we are made in the image and likeness of God as are our brothers and sisters of all different races and ethnicities. And so what does it look like as the church to enter into some of the hard conversations? What would it look like uh, to hold a mirror up and to, to examine our own hearts and our own posture in this? And what ways have we contributed? We'll look at that together this morning, even this idea of corporate moral responsibility. And the idea here is that as things have been torn apart, there's an opportunity as the church to step in and to see uh, the shalom that, that's lacking. We wanna reweave that. And so this is an image that you see there on the screen of what would it look like for us to play our part faithfully so that these threads, they get woven back together and that there's a strength, that there's a flourishing, there's a wholeness, there's a life that can be experienced for every image bearer of God. And so uh, I want to encourage you uh, this morning uh, to open up a Bible. So if you've got a Bible, uh, make sure you have that in front of you. We're going to be in a few different texts. You can also make use of cpwp.life and swipe over to you see a card that says message notes. Uh, and then any of the slides that I'm putting up this morning, you'll find uh, that content there as well as the passages that we'll be in. We'll spend a good bit of time in Romans chapter five this morning, but we're going to look at a few other uh, passages of scripture as well. And as we do uh, most every week, I want to invite you to just quiet your hearts right now. And I want to offer up a short prayer. I'll put the words on the screen and I invite you to uh, pray this aloud with me. 
that we would ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. I am not up here this morning because I'm the resident expert on these matters. I am learning as I go. I am lamenting as I go. I'm simply trying to share a few things that I have found helpful as I study not only what's just going on kind of historically, sociologically, culturally, but most importantly, what do the scriptures actually have to say? How would the gospel, how does the gospel speak into this moment? How might it frame our thinking? What would it look like for us to understand how God has made us, what God's design is for his world and who we're to be as the church and the role that we can play. And so as I put the words up on the screen, pray along with me. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us through Jesus Christ, amen. So as we get into this this morning, last week was really just sort of this call to understand a bit of like what has been happening historically, to have our eyes, our hearts kind of awaken to what is going on. And I wanna move this week into this idea of responsibility, all right? Um, and in our moment, the tendency for all of us, I think regardless of the color of our skin, there's a tendency for kind of the modern Western mind to think in a way that's that's individualistic, all right? And in some ways, there can be some really good things in that, all right, and personal responsibility, things of that nature. But there's such a hyper-individualism that takes place that we oftentimes, if we're not careful, what will happen, what I'll miss out on is I'll read the scriptures just through that very, very narrow lens, and then I will miss all the ways the Bible actually talks about kind of the corporate nature of, of sin, of redemption, of, of responsibility, like what we're to be about together like as a community. And there's this tension as we hold those things there. There are things that I'm personally responsible for, yes and amen to that, but there's also this nature of things that is corporate. And I will put before you this morning, if we don't understand the corporate nature of it, we actually will misunderstand the gospel. And so and we, as we talk about these matters, this is not just some sort of you know, social gospel cause that we're engaging. It's rather, no, we're talking about the gospel and we need to understand the gospel. And then the implications of that, if we understand the corporate nature of it, it will inform how we seek to love our neighbor and fellow image bearers. It will transform how we think and how we act as it flows out of the gospel, all right? That's what we need to see and be reminded of. And so there's this question I think that comes up and I think it's a, it's an honest question. Um, it's a question that I've asked over the years. Um, maybe you're feeling this in this moment. It's this question, am I responsible? And what I mean by that is as we think about the moment that we're in and we see the, the, you know, like the, 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 the rioting that's taking place and then there's just some of the, the anger and the frustration and um, even in the peaceful protest, it's speaking to the reality that there isn't the sh shalom. And so, Oftentimes, if you're in the majority culture, what can happen, all right, um, is we begin to think only in sort of an individualistic sense, and our mind might go to say, well, I don't walk around thinking that, like, I'm actively engaged as, as a racist, and I look back historically on our country, and there's things that have happened, you know, hundreds of years ago um, that I'm like, yeah, I understand that some of my ancestors and people that had skin color that look like mine contributed to that, but that's not what I did. And how are we to actually think about that? Now, I read a quote back in January, as each year over the last three years, we've done a series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven, where we look at issues of justice. 
And we've looked over the last three years, we've begun to uh, talk through um, issues of racial reconciliation and, and responsibility. Um, and one of the quotes that I, I put before you back in January, I want to say again this morning, because I think it helps answer this question. All right. This is from a guy, two authors, Michael Hall and D.A. Horton, in an essay that they wrote contributing to this conversation. They said this, when we talk about racial reconciliation, it is not uncommon to hear somebody reply, well, what in the world do I have to apologize for? I never owned slaves. I never operated a segregationist lunch counter. I never protested against desegregation. If I haven't done anything wrong, how can you say I need to be reconciled? It is not an entirely stupid question, but it betrays just how significant our challenge is. For embedded within a hyper-individualistic culture, we often lose sight of the ancient and biblical truth that we inhabit space and time and are deeply connected to one another, connected to history and tied to all kinds of virtues and evils. Now look with me, there's one more slide here as they continue in this to kind of frame how we can think about responsibility, both at an individual level, but at a corporate level. They continue, we thus fail to account for the fact that sin has toxic implications, not only for individuals, but for cultures, societal structures and worldviews. Our own way of thinking, loving, hating, and feeling are shaped often in ways often in ways of which we are even unaware by this reality. There's this common notion that I am the product of my choices. And what they're getting at and what I think the Bible gets at is that I'm not simply the product of my choices or the result of my choices. Like I have been shaped in ways that I'm aware of and ways that I am not aware of. And every single person, actually, that's true for all of us. And so I want to start out by asking this question, kind of looking at the corporate nature of responsibility or another way to talk about it, the corporate nature of sin. Like how does the Bible talk about sin, corporate moral responsibility, all right? And so we're going to get to a passage in Romans 5 that will inform uh, how we think about that. But before we even get to that, just at, a, um, at just an example level, if you were reading through the Bible, one of the things that you would see as you started in Genesis and you make your way through and you begin to learn about God's people, and you would learn about God's deliverance of his people, and they're moving toward the promised land. You would come across, for example, there's a story in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter seven, the people of Israel, all right, have just marched around Jericho. The walls came tumbling down, all right, and there's this great epic celebration that enemies have been defeated, but God tells them, all right, do not take certain items for yourself. They're consecrated, they're devoted, those are not for you to take. So he's asking them, trust me, I will provide for you, I'll take care of you, but don't take these items. Okay, seems simple enough. Well, what we find is a short time later, uh, God's people go um, and they engage with another enemy there in the land um, and they suffer this terrible defeat. And it doesn't make any sense because they should have overpowered this other group of people. And the Lord reveals to them, the reason that you got run out, the reason that you were not successful is because there's sin in the camp that somebody has disobeyed. Somebody has done the things that I told them not to do. And so through a process of searching and discerning, there's a man named Achan who is found to have hidden these things. And here's what Achan does. He actually confesses. He says, you're right, I'm so sorry, I did this. I was, these things were tantalizing. I was intrigued by them. I wanted them, I coveted them. And so I took them and I literally hid them like in my tent. And now look at the response here, all right? So this is what happened. It's clear on a personal responsibility level, Achan is guilty. There's no way around it. 
But look how the story is told. Joshua 7, 24 to 25 says these words. And Joshua and all Israel with him, they took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Now we read that and there's probably a number of things that come through our minds. We're, for one, maybe we're just like, did Achan even have to die? Like we wonder about that because we're comparing Achan to just the rest of us and our kind of the way we tend to think about holiness. But when the God of the universe says, don't do this, all right, there need to be obedience. But it's not just for Achan. Not only does he lose his life, but his entire family, like everything that belonged to him gets destroyed. And in our world, in our modern Western sensibilities, we just can't fathom that. We're just like, we have no categories for that. That seems wrong. It's like, God, what are you doing? But we need to remember as we talk about these matters, that wasn't strange for the people back then. In fact, even today, if you lived in certain parts of the world, they would not have the hangups that you and I have about a passage like this, that there is a corporate nature of things that we have lost sight of. And so the Apostle Paul is laying this out in Romans chapter five. So if you got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. We'll make our way through this passage together this morning. But just look at how it starts. The Apostle Paul says, okay, there's been examples throughout the scriptures of corporate moral responsibility and how we're to think about our role in the world. But where it ultimately goes back to, he says, we gotta go, we gotta go more ancient than Achan. We gotta go all the way back to the garden. We gotta go to Genesis chapter three. And this is what the apostle Paul makes reference of when he writes these words in Romans chapter five, all right? Because he, uh, he wants them and he wants us to understand like how sin works. Romans 5, 12 to 14 says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, there's a ton more we could get into. We don't have a ton of time for this this morning, but I just put this before you. I want you to see this, that Adam is one who sinned certainly, but the way that it is spoken of is Adam is our federal head. And when Adam sinned, we sinned. It's not just that uh, we now have a tendency to sin. It literally means that when you and I were born, like we were conceived in sin, we were born into sin. There's a sin nature, there's original sin, all kinds of different ways theologians would talk about it. But what is happening here is if the story of Achan bothers us, all right, we should actually go further and press in the story of the fall in Genesis 3 would bother us, right? It should bother us according to our modern Western individualistic way of thinking. Like we might offer up things like, well, it's not fair or I would have done better. That can maybe run through our minds right now. But we have to understand that sin, there's a corporate element to it. In his commentary in the book of Romans, Tim Keller said this in his commentary, it's called Romans for You. He says this, first, no one could choose a representative for you as well as God could. We must not think we could have made a more intelligent selection than God. And second, 
God did not simply choose Adam. He created Adam to be our representative. He was perfectly created and designed to act exactly as you personally as an individual would have acted in the same situation. You cannot say, I would have done a better job because that would be to claim that you could have been a better representative than God, than God created or chosen a better representative than God chose. No, God gave us the right, fair, federal head in Adam. And so we are guilty in Adam because we actually sinned in him. Now, the reason we're talking about this is because it informs our cultural moment. That as we talk about corporate moral responsibility, and as we, if you're in the majority culture, even wrestle through like, well, how am I to view this? Particularly if you think, hey, I know there are racist you know, racists that are out there and you might examine your own heart and go, I probably have some prejudices and things, but you don't feel like you're, you're actively out there, all right, committing sort of racist, you know, crimes or actions and that sort of thing. So how do we view this? Are we sort of off the hook? Are we like, well, yeah, maybe some of my ancestors, people that look like me did some horrible, horrific things. What is spoken of here in Romans 5 actually invites us into a place of responsibility right here and right now. Now, I'm not saying that's easy, but if we don't understand this, I actually don't think we are understanding the full scope of the gospel and the corporate nature of it. So what I wanna do for a few minutes here, and we're gonna look at some things sociologically and historically and then continue to look at how they're informed theologically from the Bible. But there is a corporate nature, not only to sin, not only to to responsibility, but there's a corporate nature. You could say there's a systemic aspect or an institutionalized aspect to racism, to prejudice. So let's talk for a moment about the corporate nature of racism. I've been reading through a book called Divided by Faith. It's written by a guy named Michael Emerson, and uh, who's a sociologist and another sociologist by the name of Christian Smith. He's done some phenomenal work, listened to some, some interviews and things uh, by these men, one just in the last couple of days by Michael Emerson. And he was asked, referencing this book that they wrote, just kind of talking about the divide that exists, not just out in the culture, but specifically in the church. And they're studying this as Christian men, but from a sociological perspective. And he said, what tends to happen as we think about racism, as he said, there's kind of these tools. He referred to it as the white Christians kind of toolkit, all right? That there are certain things, kind of tools that we tend to, to pull out or things that we tend to, to have a, maybe a particular lens or way that we see things, all right? And he's offering these not to beat us up. I mean, both uh, Michael Emerson is a, a white man as well, right? Like he's not walking around saying you should feel guilty and ashamed for the color of your skin. He's just saying, hey, if you're in the majority culture, there's a lot of things that we might actually miss and there's a corporate nature to things. And so he says the toolkit of Christians is, is this, the white Christian's toolkit. Um, he's not being snarky about this. He's actually just trying to be helpful with this. He says there's kind of three things. And the first one he says is the most wordy. Um, the first tool is sort of this accountable free will and individualism. And, and what he means by that is we tend to think in individualistic ways, as we've been talking about. We tend to think about just the choices that I make, not the choices of other people. And we are accountable for what we do. In fact, for many people, all right, their favorite verse in the Bible is God helps those who help themselves. There's just a massive problem with that. It's not in the Bible, all right? And so there can be this common, Ben Franklin said it, all right? Um, The reality is that's not the story that the scripture tells, that God helps those who help themselves. 
So there, there is good and right things about personal moral responsibility and accountability that tends to be, if we examine our hearts, all right, that tends to be kind of the initial way that we go. And then he says, um, when we think about change, we're prone to think about change relationally. And he's like, that's not a bad thing. I hope you have relationships with people of color from all sorts of various economic and ethnic backgrounds. Right? I hope you're friends with people that look different than you. But where we can sometimes drift toward, if we're being honest, is thinking, I'm not a racist, all right? I haven't contributed this. I've got, and you fill in the blank with, I've got a Chinese friend or I've got a, I've got a black friend or whatever it happens to be. And he's not knocking that. That's a good thing to be celebrated. I mean, you're gonna be really disappointed and frustrated with heaven, all right? When you get the picture of Romans 7, it's every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne of Jesus. It is incredibly diverse. God's diversity, that's part of the design. But there are things that cannot simply be fixed. There are larger structures at work that you and I simply saying, I'm gonna make a friend here, won't solve. It's not a bad thing but there's more tools that we should be engaging. And that leads to the last thing is they said that the tendency is just to think in sort of an anti-structural way. And what he means by that again is that there are things that are in place that have contributed over the centuries to particular patterns and, and ways of operating in the world that oftentimes, if you tend to look more like me, you're blind to that there are certain advantages and things that have come our way that we, we never had to fight for. We, we don't have to generally worry about, all right, going for a jog or certain things that we might just uh, take for granted, all right? Um, the reality is that there are systemic things that are at place. Let me put one example before you. Um, in the book of Acts, the, the church is having this just crazy, um, like an exponential growth and lots of people are meeting Jesus. And as you can imagine, super exciting time. Uh, but also if there's real people with real problems and real, you know, real sin patterns and, you know, I mean, all of that was present. And there were difficulty thing, difficult things going on culturally. And so the church is trying to rally together and they're sharing their possessions. And, it, and the one, in many ways you read Acts 2, it's like this beautiful picture but it's only a few chapters later. So by the time we get to Acts chapter six, the way it opens is we realize there are some difficulties and there's particularly uh, some marginalized kind of under-resourced people that are widows, all right? And the Bible's very clear about caring for widows and orphans. God's heart is always for those on the underside of power, those that are marginalized, those that could be overlooked. God's like, people might overlook you, but I see you. And he calls his people, the church, to enter in and to see people and their circumstances and the difficulty and to see the systemic problems. And so in Acts chapter six, here's what we read. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is Greek speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's happening here? You've got a whole group of people that love Jesus, that are worshiping Jesus, that are excited about what God is doing through this new thing that's the church. And yet you've got widows who should be seen, but the Greek speaking ones from the dispersion are being overlooked. Now, I don't think anyone woke up one day and said, how can we leave the Hellenists out? I've got a great plan that I put together. We're just gonna leave them out because we don't like them or care for them. I, I don't believe that's what's happened. That's not what the scriptures speak to, but it does point to a bigger reality. There's something structural that's going on. 
You think about the toolkit that we tend to use, right? You're like, oh, no, this is no big deal. Like, hey, I'm friends with one of the Hellenists. Great, all right? We might play that card. That might be a legitimate thing, but that doesn't mean they weren't being neglected. It doesn't mean they weren't being overlooked and something had to be done. And so it's a recognition that there are problems that are happening. There are bigger issues that are going on, all right? So that's simply it. A couple of examples. If we dive into this, there are countless examples, all right? But I would encourage you, if this is new information to you, some of the areas that you can just begin to explore. Like, I'll give you one example. There are discrepancies at kind of a systemic level as it pertains to real estate. One of the best things, all right, about living in this country and one of the, the things that usually is tied to wealth and well-being and that is, is home ownership, all right? And it can have huge implications on your life. But real estate is, it's disproportionate, that the reality of what happens if you happen to be in a home that's comparable to homes in other parts of the community or city, but you live in a neighborhood that has more non-white people, all right? So there's more black people, there's more Hispanic people. The reality is your property values will actually oftentimes decline rather than increase in other parts of town, even if you're comparing relatively similar homes. And so that is a way that just systemically things play out. So Google things like redlining, all right? Practices that have since been abolished, but they have long-term implications. It's been said that trauma has a long tail. So there are things that were happening 40, 50, 60 years ago. There were things that were happening hundreds of years ago that there's still a, a bit of trauma that is experienced right here and right now. That's the idea of systemic, all right? Other studies have been done as it pertains to, think about this, that most of us at some point go to purchase a car. Well, as people began to study, and so you picture like walking into a car dealership, all right? Um, and you see the car that you want, and um, unless you're in a spot that there's kind of like a no haggle pricing, all right? Um, typically, there'd be some haggling, there'd be some back and forth, some negotiating. Those that have studied this, what they find over and over and over again, regardless of the part of the country, or it, it literally doesn't matter, what Studies have found is that the group of people that pay least for a vehicle, for the same vehicle, are white men, all right? So white men will, generally speaking, get the best price, all right? Black men will get a better price than black women. So white men and black men will get a better price than black women. Black women literally will pay the most for the same exact vehicle with the same features of any of the other groups. So functionally, you have black women, all right, who are subsidizing the cost of what a white man rolls out with in this particular vehicle. And so you just look at that. Now, I don't know that the car dealer started out to say, I'm gonna make sure that this group of people, that these minority women feel some sense of oppression. But the reality is sometimes these things play out that way. So what do we do? Partly, we need to be aware of those matters. To acknowledge that those things are there. We need to realize, oh, there is a, there's a corporate asset. There's a corporate aspect to prejudice. There's a corporate aspect to racism. There is a long tail in all of these things. There's implications today. Emerson, again, in his book, Divided by Faith, spoke as we think about this, and there's no time to dive into all of it, but just let me put this before you uh, this morning. 
how we as a community, how can we be thinking about these things and looking in, in areas where we might pay more attention to? And he said there's kind of four ways, and this is an oversimplification certainly, all right? But there's four ways, four crucial ways that race continues to play out in modern day America. And he said the first of these, I'll put them up on the screen for a moment here. He says it's four things, decolorate, segregate, incarcerate, and alienate. So how race operates today. Here's briefly what he means by those as we think about this. Decolorate is the thought that oftentimes might be well-intentioned, all right? Particularly if you're in the majority culture, if you're white, to say, you know what? I just, I just see you as a man or a woman. Like, I don't see color. Now, that could be spoken from a, a place, like a, a, what you would think of as a good and healthy place. But here's the reality. God designed color. God designed diversity, all right? And one shouldn't ignore color because by doing that, we end up unintentionally sort of giving ourselves a pass to be like, well, I don't see color. And so I don't know how these things continue to exist. We have to see color. We have to see the implications of that. He spoke of that things segregate. And he wasn't so much speaking of forced segregation. It's more just the reality that if you're in the majority culture, we are oftentimes the white community is oftentimes far more isolated from other ethnicities, other races, right? And so we just can find ourselves just with a particular lens, a particular way to view the world. And so it's just, hey, be aware of this. He's not trying to heap guilt upon you for that. He's just saying, hey, let's pay attention to those things. There's a lot more we could get into this, but in incarcerate, the reality, if you're convicted as a felon, like your rights are all stripped away, go study what happened when even after the Emancipation Proclamation and you're into Reconstruction, all right, during that, that phase, all right, what began to happen is people were then, black people were arrested over and over again as a way to recoup the losses from the plantations, all right? And so people were arrested for relatively minor infractions, sometimes things that were made up. And then you just study this. And he says, it's having massive implications today that how disproportionate it is, particularly amongst the black community as compared to the white community. And so pay attention to those things. These things are happening in our culture. And then alienate is simply this. Pay attention to how we talk about fellow image bearers of God, that our language matters. There can be a tendency to dehumanize somebody. So when we talk about people, to recognize they are people, all right? That doesn't mean there's not real issues to talk through about like, hey, how do we, what, what happens at the borders and how do we allow for citizenship and all of that. But there even can be a drift towards referring to them, not so much as image bearers of God, as men and women, but what, they're illegal aliens. I mean, that very language can be dehumanizing. And I'm not saying I've never used that language. It's just this moment for me to pause and be like, oh yeah, in what ways does race sort of play out today? How are we to be thinking about these things and what can the church do? And so it raises this question, well, how, how do we respond? And I think there's all sorts of things, but where I wanna call our attention to for just a moment is what we see about how an Old Testament man of God responded to sins that had been committed that had radical implications on his life put him in captivity, and the reality was this. He wasn't the one who directly committed the sins. I'm talking about the story of Daniel, who gets hauled off by the Babylonians as a young man, and late in life, all right, this is where we pick up the story in Daniel chapter nine, all right, Daniel is reflecting on this 
uh, this word that had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah about 70 years in captivity. And so we know at this point, like Daniel is an old man and he's thinking about what led to captivity. And he begins to pray a prayer of repentance. And so church, here's my invitation for us. As we think about the corporate nature of responsibility, of sin, the corporate nature of racism, and as we think through, okay, what can I do? What can I offer? What am I called to do? There's a corporate repentance that takes place. That's one of the things you see over and over again in the Bible because it isn't just framing it from an individualistic standpoint. There's a corporate nature to it. So look at the words in Daniel chapter nine. I'll read verses three to eight, all right? Let's pay attention to how he speaks of sins that were committed. And no one would say that Daniel did these things directly and yet he's confessing them. So here's Daniel chapter nine. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So, I mean, Daniel's serious about this, all right? I mean, it's pleading for mercy. There's fasting, there's sackcloth, there's ashes, all right? He prayed to the Lord. I made this confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Do you notice the collective language? Church, there is a calling for us to enter in, to weep with those who weep. And I believe there is biblical calling for us to engage even in healthy repentance for what has transpired, as we even think just specifically in our nation. And for the, at a corporate systemic level, the things that continue to happen. And what frees us to be able to do this is as we understand the corporate nature of sin, we then begin to understand the corporate nature of the gospel. That the message of Christianity is like, hey, you gotta pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You gotta fix this. You've gotta do this. God's really angry at you for all your prejudice and racism and, and you better prove to him that you're really, really sorry and that you, that you love him and somehow do enough good things to offset that at an individual level and a systemic level. Like that crushes us. We can't possibly do that. No human being, regardless of the race, can do enough good things to please God. We were born into sin. It's not even just that we sin, it's that we're born into it. That's the reality of our condition. But the beautiful good news, and we'll close with this, we'll go back to Romans 5. And I'm just gonna read through these verses. There's so much to unpack. I mean, it's so dense and rich, just the theology, the, the layers that Paul builds here. But I just big picture want us to be encouraged that we get invited into this story. And there's not a pressure for us to fix ourselves as individuals, but rather there's a God who pursues us, who makes us into his people. And so Romans chapter 5, 15 to 21, closes out the chapter. And I'll read these words and then just talk briefly here of just the implications for us here and now. And how if we understand this, 
what happens to us individually, also what is happening corporately and how that transforms how we think and operate. It gives me a freedom to be able to say, I can freely repent of things like Daniel did because I understand who I am in Christ. I understand that there's these corporate systemic problems that are going on. And I'm so thankful that the God of the universe not only rescues individuals, but he's actually putting the whole world back together again. And he invites us to help repair the places of brokenness. He invites us to reweave things so that shalom might be experienced. So look with me at these words and pay attention to how many times the apostle Paul says the words free gift. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, meaning Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, it brought condemnation. But what? But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Paul's telling us there's this movement from condemnation, dead in our sins, to justification, right standing with God. That's amazing. For if, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, not a righteousness we could earn on our own, we get the righteousness of Christ. That's the exchange that took place on the cross where Jesus died for all people, regardless of their race, ethnicity, regardless of the ways that they've sinned or the ways they've been sinned against. He takes all of our rebellion, all of our sin, all of that upon himself, takes the punishment that you and I deserve and then gives us his righteousness, the free gift of righteousness. We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So now there's this calling, there's this implication to live in light of that reality. That's what empowers us. So therefore, verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. First, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded. And the language here is grace superabounded. Paul's like grasping for what words can I just tell you? Like grace superabounds. It just keeps moving forward. It's overflowing. It spills out toward all of us so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let me put this before you. So we think through, okay, the implication of this glorious good news, which at one reading can maybe think, make us think for a moment, oh yeah, that's about me and Jesus and this individual thing, but we're talking corporate. It's when we grasp that, when we begin to see the corporate nature of it, that it wasn't up to us to rescue ourselves, that God himself had to step in. We're outside of the realm then of individualism because we can't do it on our own. There's this corporate nature to it. And what happens is God doesn't just create a new person, but he creates a new people. But you are a chosen race, First Peter would say, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not just a new person, a new people. This deals with our individualism individualism, our hyper-individualism. It also tells us that we're now this sort of counterintuitive, this community that's upside down, countercultural, doesn't make sense in the world's eyes. It deals with our identity. 
And so for those of us who go through life and we realize, hey, we've had some particular privilege. There are things about being in the majority culture, some things that, that we've gotten along the way. This is, the, this is what is spoken of, I believe, in James chapter one, all right? It speaks of this. It says, let the lowly brother exalt in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's speaking to the identity that we have in Christ. And so if you find yourself marginalized, if you find yourself overlooked, if you find yourself not part of a majority culture, if you find yourself the victim of particular institutional systemic things that you're just hoping and praying would go away, but doesn't seem to be getting any better, you're to exalt, it's a, be exalted like in your low position. What does that mean? Don't forget the sonship that you have, the inheritance that you have, that you're a son or daughter of the king. Don't forget that. And then for those of us that maybe find ourselves, oftentimes we're not the overlooked ones. That's not to say your life is perfect, right? But in certain ways, there may be certain advantages. There's certain things that happen. The humiliation speaks to just, it's not humiliation in the way that we tend to think about that of a shaming, but rather it's a, hey, let's humble ourselves. Let's remember that I'm a sinner saved by grace. Lest I get full of myself and think I've earned everything that I have, that God does help those who help themselves. And I've been really faithful in that. The reality is we've been gifted so many things. In fact, everything that we have is a good gift that flows from our Father. And so there's this new identity. And then lastly, it deals with, it says there's this reign of righteousness. So we look at verse 21, even as you look back at verse 17. Sin reigns, reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness. Church, it's not a righteousness you have to earn. It's not a righteousness you can earn. It reminds us that we rest in the righteousness of God. And the reason this is so important as we step into these things, as we seek after shalom, is this. The tendency, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of socioeconomic status, the tendency is to build our righteousness on things other than Jesus. And when that happens, we move away from the righteousness of Christ and we move towards self and it ends up in a self-righteousness. And the power of the gospel, the corporate nature of it, is it does away with that and tells us there's no room for self-righteousness. There's no reason to think we're better than anybody. There's no reason to look down our nose at somebody else. There's no reason to get puffed up and think I'm further along than some of these other people as it regards racial and social injustice. And why can't people just get on board? And maybe if I just post one more snarky thing online, that's gonna help the cause, right? Like the reality is there's a self-righteousness that can creep in, particularly as we talk about these matters. But when we understand the gospel, it humbles us because Jesus had to die for us, but it lifts us up because Jesus was glad to die for us. And so I'm gonna close in prayer and I wanna invite you to do this. The idea of responsive kind of corporate prayer, um, something's lost in that in the live stream, I realize. But I'm still, we're gonna go for it. I'm gonna read the first couple lines and what you see that's in bold and italics, wherever you are, would you pray this aloud with me? So I'm gonna, pray these words. We're going to pray them together as a corporate confession. And then I want to just, after that, give you just a, a minute or two just to reflect, to pray, to consider these matters, and to ultimately thank God for his grace. And as we sing songs, then in response, let it be a prayer, even as we get into this next song, that we would come awake, that we would realize that God has called us to be the church in this 
moment. And so pray along with me. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And pray aloud with me. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In our selfishness, we have tried to build our own kingdom, not yours. We've sought our own flourishing, not our neighbors. We have used your grace as a way to bring glory to ourselves, not you. We are truly broken and we humbly repent. And for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. Now say with me that we can delight in your love, feast on your grace, and join you in your kingdom-building work. Amen. Church, let's continue to respond in prayer and considering these matters. So take a moment to quiet your hearts and let's reflect on these truths.